Welcome to Next Up, a Mid-Century Homes production, where we highlight the people, the places, and the work of folks that are making an impact in the world of mid-century design and architecture. And when we are not conducting interviews for this podcast, we are making mid-century dreams come true in Boise, Idaho. You can find out more about the work we do online at mid-centuryhomes.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Boise Mid-Century Homes. Hey there, this is TJ with Mid-Century Homes. Thanks for tuning in. On today's podcast, we have Elizabeth A.T. Smith joining us. She's an American art historian, a museum curator, writer, and presently the executive director of the Helen Frankenthaler Foundation. She has formally held positions as a curator at the Los Angeles Museum of Contemporary Art, the Chief Curator and Deputy Director of Programs at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, and the Executive Director of Curatorial Affairs at the Art Gallery of Ontario. She is the author of numerous books on art and architecture, including Blueprints for Modern Living, The History and Legacy of the Case Study Houses, which we will be discussing in more detail in today's podcast. But before we jump in, here's a quick word from our sponsor. All right. Well, let's jump right in. Um, Can you tell us just a little bit about who you are and the work that you have done over the majority of your career? So my name is Elizabeth Smith, and I'm an art historian. I have worked as a museum curator for the majority of my career and for the past Almost six years now, I've been director of a foundation, a New York City-based foundation that supports the visual arts. It's called the Helen Frankenthaler Foundation. And, and what is the majority of the work that you're doing in your current role? In my current role, I oversee the stewardship of the legacy of the artist Helen Frankenthaler, who was an abstract expressionist and who passed away in 2011, leaving a large collection of her own art, archives um, and scholarly materials and her financial assets uh, to the foundation to support the visual arts and to keep her legacy going. Very cool. And this isn't the only thing that you've done um, in your lifetime. In fact, one of the things that uh, connects us here is the work that you've done with the Case Study House program. Um, How did you get yourself in the middle of that work? Well, I began my career as a curator at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles right after graduate school back in the 1980s. And I was assigned by the director of the museum to do some research on the Case Study House program for a possible future exhibition at the museum. And he asked me to do that research because I was the only one on the staff besides him who had any kind of background in or interest in architecture. I had studied architectural history in graduate school. Uh So that set me on the path of a uh, a five-year journey of learning about the Case Study House program in preparation for that exhibition. Wow, that's cool. What, um, for, for those that are not as familiar with the Case Study House program, in an elevator pitch style, can you tell us what it is? 
I'll do my best to summarize it succinctly. <laughs> uh, in my mind, it's it's one of the most significant chapters in modern architecture in the United States. And it's it's influential primarily because of the way it was promoted in a progressive magazine called Arts and Architecture. Mm-hmm. The editor of Arts and Architecture magazine in 1945 decided to launch what he called the Case Study House Program. And his idea was that the magazine could be the vehicle for uh, presenting and promoting a series of progressive modern reg- residential designs by a group of architects that he felt were particularly innovative. Uh, and he sought to um, do this to help influence the public on the benefits of modern architecture. And yeah. Kenza, like you know, many others at the time, realized that after World War II, there would be a huge demand for new housing. Mm-hmm. There hadn't been housing constructed much at all during the Great Depression years, and certainly not during World War II. Um, because residential building basically, you know, ground to a halt. So in anticipation of what he knew would happen in the aftermath of the war, he invited eight architects to contribute designs to what he called this case study house program, an experimental means of helping young and creative and innovative architects find a, a way to, um, to express their ideas for what the future could hold and to have an outlet um, for their talents and energies. Yeah. And there's a couple, who are the most famous architects that were involved in that program? Well, there there were quite a number who were involved over its run because it lasted for quite a long time. After starting in 1945, when it was first announced, it actually extended up until 1966. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah. So it had it had a really long lifespan. The the architects who participated um, were quite varied, but the ones that we know today as being sort of the most famous include Eero Saarinen, who you know designed many important major modern buildings uh, later on in his career. Uh, Charles Eames, the well-known designer, who together with his wife Ray is known as one of the foremost figures in 20th century product design, primarily. And uh, the others who are also quite well-known include Pierre Koenig. He designed some of the really classical sort of signature works in the program using steel. Mm -hmm. And I would say those three are probably those who are the best known today. There were a number of others, too, who are um, also like very well-regarded and and known, um, mostly in the U.S., including Ralph Rapson, who was based in the Midwest, in uh, Minnesota, and others including Edward Killingsworth, who later became known as the designer of um, many large luxury resort hotels, among other things. So it was a really interesting spectrum of architects who were invited by Intenza to participate. Yeah, and you mentioned, um, or or maybe this was my, my previous knowledge and maybe our conversation back and forth prior to this call, but the original commission was eight architects and eight houses, correct? That's how it began. Uh, when Antenza first announced the program, which he did in the magazine, uh, in a published statement, he decided to start with, with eight architects, eight houses. Yeah. And, you know, in 1945, that seemed um, doable, I suppose, but it actually wasn't as easy for him to get those uh, eight designs built as he had imagined. Mm-hmm. And some of them actually never uh, got built. They just remained, you know, on paper. 
Uh, others have then had to be swapped out for um, perhaps you know a project that was uh, actually going to be realized with a client, an actual <laughs> client, versus one that that yeah. you know didn't get a client and things yeah, have to be needed delayed. To get paid. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It was it, it was a little bit you know in the years right after World War II, uh, it, it was a little bit difficult making that you know transition from the the wartime manufacturing usages to peacetime production. So there were a lot of materials, actually, that weren't available. So a a lot of things like that got in the way um, with the first eight projects, and some of them weren't realized, actually, until, you know, as late as 1949. Mm -hmm. And and how many total houses are included in the program? Altogether, there were 36 designs identified as case study houses in the program over its history, you know, over its period from 45 to 66. But yeah. of those, of, of that total number, there were only 24 that were actually built. Yeah, so, okay. you know, as I mentioned previously, quite a few remained unbuilt for one reason or another. Yeah, um, and of the 21 that were built, are all of them still standing? Uh, I, you know, I, I want to say yes, but I yeah. realize I may not be completely up to speed on that. Um, I would hope so, but, um, <laughs> it may not be, uh, in, when in, I was your... first doing my research, you know, on the project some years ago, um, the majority of the built works, you know, I, I was able to visit and, yeah. um, some of them were still in great shape. Others had, you know, been modified. Some had been, just remodeled beyond, you know, anything even recognizable as a modern home, okay. which struck me as kind of tragic. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So they were so, sort of all over the place at that time. Did you say you actually got to visit every single one of them? Well, I tried. I mean, as yeah. part of my research, you know, it involved getting in the car, you know, with the the, the book that had been written previously with the addresses and you know, trying to find each one of these homes. And then once uh-huh. I found them, trying to, you know, gain access. Yeah. Uh, and for the most part, that was, you know, fairly easy. In some cases, you know, I wasn't able to get access. But it was really, a, that was a, an essential part of the research. Yeah. And, and did you say that it was, yeah, and did you say that, that that started back in 1984? Is that what I remember? Uh, yeah, around 84, yes, okay. yes, because the exhibition um, was actually realized in 1989. So, you know, there was this period of several years of just gathering information, research, figuring out what the exhibition should be, you know, what how the catalog should be, what should the publication um, right. contribute. And did you know back in 84 that it was going to be five years after when the exhibition took place, or did the exhibition get delayed? Um, well, you know, for something of that magnitude, because the project ended up being quite large, it's not uncommon, actually, to, you know, require five years to do. But I think that when we first began, you know, we didn't have, you know, that end date clearly established. But we knew it was going to take a few years. Yeah. 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 And and I think on our last call, you mentioned to me that there were quite a few people involved in the research phase leading up to the presentation. Is, is, am I remembering that correctly? Yes, you are. It was a project of, of significant magnitude, and I liken it sometimes to the making of a movie because there were so many different kinds of people that had to be involved. I, I was fortunate to be the curator, so I was sort of you know, the clerk of the works, 
Um, but there were quite a few people working with me as researchers. Mm-hmm. And then some of the most important contributors to the project were the architects who designed the exhibition, and they served okay. as the creative directors of the project. And I must credit them with turning it into something so memorable that people still talk to me about it today. Yeah. Uh, if they saw that exhibition, they really could not fail to be impressed by it because it was realized in such a such a um, imaginative way that really brought the architecture to life and brought the period. Um, you know, of mid-century modernism in the post-war world uh, to life for the visitors of that time. So um, I want to mention their names, Craig Hodgetts and Ming Fung, who have a design firm called Hodgetts and Fung Design. They were the the brains behind the presentation of the project. That's cool. And part of what they did that was so extraordinary was to uh, create or cause to be created two full-scale replicas of case study houses from the program in the exhibition. So when visitors came to see the show, they could walk through the replicas of these houses at full scale (laughs) that were furnished by Hollywood set decorators to resemble exactly how they might have looked in the time that they were designed and in one case built. So it was really a tour de force, and it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. People were captivated by it. Yeah, you really were preparing for a movie. <laughs> it, it, it sort of felt that way at times. Yes, it did. That's interesting. Well, you've given us some details of the very kind of particular aspects of this event that took place in 1989, but kind of you know, bring us back to more of an umbrella view. What was this event? Tell me more about that. When you say event, do you mean the exhibition or do you mean the Case yeah. Study House program? The exhibition. No, no, no. What I mean is uh, the, all the all the work that you were preparing for, the research that you were doing for the, um, I, I guess it was the exhibition that took place in 1989. Oh, okay. T- tell us more about that, what the kind of grand idea was for that um, that event and that exhibition. What were you trying to accomplish? What was it called? Who were you um, trying to attract? And tell us a little bit more about, you know, what you expected for the event and, and what the actual reality to the event was. How many people did come? And, okay. and tell me more about that. Okay. Well, the exhibition ended up being titled Blueprints for Modern Living, History and Legacy of the Case Study Houses. And the idea to call it Blueprints for Modern Living was, you know, related very clearly to the fact that each of these homes, you know, were built from a set of blueprints. And that the idea of modern living or how life would change or was anticipated to change in the post-war world and how architecture and design could shape that and contribute Mm -hmm. to it were essential ideas behind the project. And then, of course, the idea of the history and legacy was critical, too, because we wanted to position this phenomenon of the case study houses in a context for people. You know, it didn't just come out of thin air. There, there you know, was, was a history from which it came. Uh, the modern architects active in the U.S., of course, were influenced by their predecessors in Europe, you know, several of whom, including people like Richard Neutra, Rudolf Schindler, um, had come to California and established modernism there. So the Americans were sort of taking off from what they had learned from people like Neutra, Schindler, and others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the history also of the case study houses depends on Asian and even uh, you know, Latin American precedents. 
So we, we told that story as well in the exhibition in the book. But then we also wanted to talk about the legacy of the program in the exhibition. So we had a component of it where we invited um, present-day architects to contribute designs for what they imagined to be the kind of housing that was needed in the 1980s as opposed to what had been done by their predecessors in the 1940s and 50s. Right. So the show was very broad. I mean, it really you know, covered a lot, but it centered on those 36 case study house designs and really sought to bring them to life so that visitors to our exhibition could experience them and understand them uh, in every detail and in every way. Not just mm-hmm. as, as architectural designs, you know, because we had the scale models, we had drawings, original drawings, we had blueprints, we had photographs and photo blow-ups, we had all of those things that you generally find in a show about architecture, mm-hmm. but we also had those full-scale models or mock-ups that I referred to earlier that right. um, created entire environments for people. We had the artifacts, we had the furniture, we had the elements that you would have found in the kitchens at the time. You know, we we really had everything there. We had a chronological timeline of the period. We had video material that was that had been made especially for the show, um, where the living architects and other comment- commentators on the program could speak about the works and their impact. Mm-hmm. So we really went all out. Yeah. To, where did this take place? It took place at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Los Angeles at its facility that was then called the Temporary Contemporary. It's a large sort of former warehouse that lent itself very well to a presentation of this kind. We had the space where you could actually do something like this and present houses at full scale inside of it. Right. How many people were you hoping to attract to this event? Well, we didn't have a a number in mind specifically, and uh, I'm not sure that the museum even, you know, back then even counted attendance. Uh-huh. But I have to say that it was a very well attended event, and it got a significant amount of press. Yeah. Um, people wrote about it, and uh, I I must say, and and I hope I don't sound like I'm you know bragging or sort of patting myself <laughs> on the back here, but we, my team and I, really felt proud that we had been able to do justice to this subject, and that we had been able to reintroduce it or introduce it in some cases, uh, to people that didn't know about it, reintroduce it to those who did, and uh, have something that made a significant impact. People started Mm -hmm. looking at modern residential architecture differently from that point onward in L.A. And a whole younger generation of architects was, you know, quite interested in it. And even artists, a lot of artists said to me, that show made such an impact on me. And even one of them said to me, I moved to L.A., after I saw that exhibition, because I wanted to be in the yeah. area where that ethos was present. Right. That's very, and very cool. Yeah. I love yeah, that. It was, it was very <laughs> gratifying. If you had to put a number on it, even though attendance wasn't counted, was this 100 people, 200 people, oh, 500 no, people? No, no. I mean, I would say, I would hope we got, you know, close to the 100,000 mark or something like that. Um, 100,000 people. Well, I, I mean, I'm just guessing because, as I said, back wow. then, the museum didn't keep, you know, yeah. at least I wasn't aware of attendance tallies that were kept. Yeah. But um, I would imagine and, that, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. It was a well-attended exhibition. And was this, um, like, over a weekend? Oh, no, no. It was um, It was for uh, for several months. 
Okay. Yeah, gotcha. yeah. Most museum exhibitions stay up for at yep. least, you know, three months. And I think we kept this one up for I want to say five, maybe five or six months. That that's awesome. It, yeah. Was there like a launch event and a closure event? Um, there was certainly a launch event. Uh, there was a, you know, generally when a museum opens a show, they do a party, um, a reception that they call an opening. So we okay. definitely had that. And then during the course of the exhibition, there were many public programs, you know, uh, lectures, um, panel discussions, things of that yeah. nature that were done that That's would bring cool. people in. And then we had yeah. tours. We worked with an organization called the LA Conservancy, devoted mm -hmm. to the preservation of architecture in Los Angeles. And they led tours to some of the case study houses that people could go on. And yeah. And uh, so there were many events during the course of the whole the whole exhibition. Right. That is, uh, you know, being familiar with the program itself and, you know, the material that's currently published about it is one thing, but learning more about, like, how it all came to be, <laughs> that that's really exciting. I mean, it totally makes me, you know, wish that I was around and into this era of architecture at the time that this event happened. <laughs> yeah, it, it was exciting. I really have to say it was exciting. Uh, and well, I should also mention something about the, the publication that we did along with the exhibition. Is this mm -hmm. a good time to mention that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. Because um, I do think people... Um, may be interested to know that there was really a um, wonderful catalog that was produced in connection with that show. It was published by the MIT Press, and the title is the same as the exhibition. It's called Blueprints for Modern Living, History and Legacy of the Case Study Houses. Mm -hmm. And it's out of print now, but you can order it. You know, you can get it. And I really encourage anybody who's interested to get this book because it contains a number of essays by amazing thinkers uh, and historians of architecture, some of whom were intimately involved with that period. Esther McCoy wrote an essay for that book. She was a, um, an extraordinary uh, writer on modern architecture in LA, and she was an architect herself. She had worked for Rudolf Schindler. Um, she had written a book on the case study houses early on. She wrote an essay. Rainer Banham, the architectural historian uh, from Britain, wrote an essay. There, there were, you know, a number of wonderful um, comment, yeah. um, commentary in that book. And, and the design is also beautiful. It was designed by Lorraine Wilde, who's mm -hmm. one of the best uh, graphic designers, in my view, still working today. Yeah. So I encourage that's people a, to look for that book. Yeah, that's a great resource. I wasn't even familiar with that one. So definitely something that I think a lot of us will probably peek into and, and learn more about. Um couple more questions for you. Um, the, the book that a lot of people purchase to learn about this is, is the one that you've put together. And there's two versions of it, if I'm not mistaken. There's a really detailed version that sits on a lot of coffee tables that covers everything and anything. And then a condensed version that's uh, that's a little bit easier of a read. I would say probably more of an introduction. Am I? Is that right? That's right. That's right. Okay. They, they can, are both products of the same publisher, Taschen, the German yeah. publishing house. And the large version of the book came first. Okay. And the large version, I, I joke that it's um, it's a coffee table book that's actually the size of a coffee table because it is really <laughs> exactly. big and it's really it heavy. Huge. 
it's quite amazing because the publishers decided to include in the book spreads, like reprints of the spreads from the original Arts and Architecture magazines on each yeah. study house. So it's a phenomenal document because those those early magazines are not that easy to come by. Right. Um, you you know you can find them, but here in this Tashin book, they're all grouped into um, into one volume. So you get all the original material that was written about the case study houses, you know, as it was published yeah. in the magazine. Yeah. It's phenomenal. And then the small version of the book doesn't include those reprints, but it does include um, a similar introduction, and it, it includes, you know, some some brief um, descriptive material on each one of the case study house projects. Right. Yeah, and I think that that's cool that there's those two different versions of the book because um, it makes it a little bit more accessible to those that, you know, are not quite ready to dive headlong into understanding, you know, the very particular details of, of each home. So I love that both of those are out there. Um, I am curious from a um, production standpoint um, regarding that book or from a publication standpoint, from the day that the event happened to the time that the book was published, what period of time was that? How long in between? Between the publication of the Toshin book? And the, and the and event that the, the original show that took place, yeah, in 1989. How long of a time between those two? Okay, well, I should have double-checked to, to remind myself when that Toshin <laughs> book was first published. Um, I don't have that at my fingertips. You probably do. And and, um, and, and and you don't need to give me the exact number, but was this like a couple years? Was it five no, years? No, no. There, there were quite a few years uh, in between okay. uh, before Toshin came up with the idea to produce their book. And I can't remember exactly how many yeah. at this point. But, but a number but, of years after the event. Yes, yes. And okay. I had moved on to another job by that point. I was no longer with uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art in L.A., if I'm not mistaken. So, okay. um, you know, they asked me if I would, would do something. So, of course, yeah. I said yes. And one of the beautiful things about that project is that I continued to get many invitations to write about the case study houses for Japanese publications, for German publications, a lot of international interest. And I still to this day get invitations to give lectures and to talk about the program. Um, yeah. You know, or to because be it has such a yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, it really has had a, a long um, influence, and um, people, uh, you know, continue to be interested by it. Yeah, so that makes well, me I, happy too. For sure, and I, I think the cool thing about it for us, you know, and the work that we get to do where we're, you know, primarily helping in the core business of what we do, help people in Boise buy and sell properties that have been built in this era. Um, but, you know, as, as we're trying to teach and train and educate along the way in the process of doing that work, uh, we find it pretty interesting that um, a lot of mid-century enthusiasts uh, or this, of this era of modern architecture are not actually super familiar with the case study house program. Uh -huh. So mm -hmm. when we get to, you know, open their eyes to some really, like you said, um, significant and um, almost, you know, the most important chapter of modernism architecture, modernist architecture, and get to, you know, make that a, a new revelation for somebody to then start researching, that's actually a really fun process that we get to be involved in as well, which is obviously why I want to get you on the podcast 
is because of all the people that are listening, I, I think there's plenty of them that are not familiar with it. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that inspires them to go out and learn more and know what resources are out there and available for them to do so. So, yeah, it's, it's yes, definitely so. it's definitely uh, a unique period of time, a very unique project that um, was, you know, initiated. And the, I guess the other question I have for you, since you've been able to visit the majority of these houses, mm-hmm. is it is it okay to ask you which one is your favorite? <laughs> oh, sure. Although that's kind of a hard question, um, <laughs> I but I'll, yeah, I can I can do my best to answer it. I have to say that I feel that Charles and Ray Eames House is probably my favorite. Although there's another one I'll talk about also. Uh, the Eames House was finished in 1949. And it's so unique as an environment that reflects the the aesthetic preferences and the you know the interest in technology, uh, the landscape. Um, everything comes together in this house that is just a marvelous product. Um, and I, again, I encourage anybody who goes to Los Angeles should visit the Charles and Ray Eames house. It, mm-hmm. it is administered by a foundation now, and it is available to be visited. Yeah. So don't miss it if you go there. It's an absolutely astonishingly sort of uh, um, artistic and technological environment that, that mm-hmm. you will never see the likes of again. Um, but the other case study house that I'm also just very enamored with is in a different part of Los Angeles. It's located in Altadena. California, which is a little more to the east of LA, and uh, it um, was a house designed by the architects Buff, Straub, and Hensman for a couple named Saul and Ruth Bass. It was built in the 50s, I think 58. And Saul Bass was um, a well-regarded designer of titles for films in Hollywood, graphic designer, I guess you would call him. Mm-hmm. And his wife was a biochemist. Uh, yeah. And the house is built all of plywood. Uh, and it's an absolutely beautiful environment. Um, everything is sort of rounded and curved and organic. And it, it makes an absolutely glorious sort of container for the space. Very open, of course, to the outdoors, um, as all the case study houses were. But th- there's something just sort of very elegant and warm uh, about that home that I think is just just brilliant. So th- those houses are two very different ones. The, the Eames yeah. house was built with a steel frame, uh, and so many of the case study house architects favored steel because they felt it right. was you know the new thing. It was the mm-hmm. uh, the way housing should be going with this technological emphasis. Yeah. Um, that could be possibly made you know into mass housing. That that's and that's something else I should mention. The case study program wasn't intended to be about one-offs. It was meant to present prototypes that could be done through mass production so that many people could have similar homes. Yeah. And it just for the case study house program itself, it didn't really work out that way. Most of the houses ended up being, you know, kind of unique statements for particular sites and clients. But, you know, elsewhere, of course, there were many examples of um, modern houses that were built, you know, as tracked tracts, um, the Eichler homes, for instance, in northern and southern California, and then elsewhere around the country, and many other 
um, modern tracks were realized, um, uh, you know, in places as different as Massachusetts to Illinois to, you know, to Arizona. So um, that did happen, but the case studies themselves are really remarkable for, um, in my mind, how unique each one actually was. Right, right. Well, that's fun because it uh, gives me, you know, a reason to go learn more about your favorite too. <laughs> so, and so much to learn and, and all of that material that's available. Um, but I agree. I mean, I think it was a really, you know, phenomenal um, strategy to try to influence the world of architecture at the time. And I guess one other thing to, to bring up is, is this, the gentleman um, that, that kind of, you know, launched the program or created the, the emphasis of um, what we were trying to accomplish through the program, who was, uh, was he the owner or the editor of arts and architecture? What, what was his title? Well, he was the editor, but also the owner. He actually oh, he was bought, yes, he bought the magazine in 1938, and it was then called California Arts and Architecture, and it was a fairly, you know, modest publication, nothing special. Yeah. But okay. he turned it around, and um, as a devotee of modernism, he hired, you know, very progressive graphic designers to redo mm-hmm. the look of the magazine. He decided to publish works only by, you know, modernists. And if you, you know, read through those magazines, it's, it's rather wonderful because, you know, everything over time, everything becomes about like this new aesthetic, whether it's artwork or music or architecture or even like progressive politics. Um, yeah. He really turned it into an organ for modernism. Yeah, and, and remind um, me his name again. His name is John Antenza. John Antenza, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And he was a very interesting figure. Someone needs to write a biography of, of, of him because um, as editor of this magazine, he was a real force um, for dissemination of, of information. And then at, in, you know, he stuck with it until the mid-60s, after which time he moved to Chicago, and he became director of a foundation called the Graham Foundation. And they support okay. projects in architecture and the visual arts. So yeah. he had a... You know, he he was a pretty formidable figure, right? And and I'm curious, you know, how how long ago did he pass away? Do you happen to know? Off the top of my head, I don't. I would have to look that up. Okay, um, I guess he, I guess he was what gone I by the time I started research on the show. So he he passed away okay. before the mid '80s. I know that. Yeah, and I guess yeah. that what would be kind of fun to think about from his perspective is, do, do you think he concluded after? launching this program that he was successful in what he set out to do? Um, well, I'm, I'm sure he felt he was successful in some respects and unsuccessful in others. Yeah. The, you know, I mentioned this a goal for replicability of the, the case study designs and thinking right. of them as prototypes. Well, that didn't really happen. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that he wanted to see the, the, the project do was to go into the area of multifamily housing, you know, and track okay. housing. And yeah. there were a couple of the, there was a wonderful design for a tract, a case study tract that wasn't actually ever built. Uh, and then there was a small group of what was called the case study apartments um, 
in um, Phoenix that, that were built, but it was just a small number. And then there, there's mm-hmm. actually also a wonderful group of three homes down in La Jolla, California, called the Triad. Uh, so, you know, that goal of, of, again, mass production, mass housing, being able to meet the needs of a lot of people and provide yeah. this kind of living environment for many, many people just didn't come to fruition within the case study program. And I'm sure right. Intensa felt the loss of that. Right. But on the other hand, his magazine was read you know, internationally, and um, they had subscribers from Europe, from Asia, from Latin America. It was kind of a, a force field that way. And I had the pleasure of meeting and talking with some of the major architects of our own time, including Renzo Piano and um, Richard Rogers, you know, the British uh, and Italian um, architects who are now credited with developing the high-tech movement. Um, And they told me that they, you know, were young readers of arts and architecture, and it it influenced their own development as architects. Yeah, I mean, yeah. De- definitely changed the way the world was being viewed on probably multiple fronts. So in that yeah. way, he probably yeah. felt successful. But I get what you're right. saying, that there's some other things he had intended that he didn't see come to fruition. Yeah, so. yeah. And I think there was still a lot of resistance to modernism, you know, mm-hmm. during the time when he, these case study houses were being built. I mean, after all, it was, you know, a fairly – I mean, it was something that – you know, the American public wasn't that familiar with. There weren't that many examples of modern architecture around. And the idea of having a flat roof and open floor plan and, you know, sliding glass doors and, you know, this kind of indoor-outdoor approach just wasn't something that was that familiar to people. And um, L.A. was a, a riper ground for work of that kind because it had, you know, the reputation of being an experimental place. Um, yeah. A lot of people came there from other places, and the climate, you know, made it easier to to have houses mm-hmm. like that. So, uh, you know, Intensa had lofty goals of trying to, you know, convince the public, you know, that modern homes were the way to go. Right. And, uh, you know, advertising in its magazine was one thing, and also opening the houses up for, to the public to, so they could be toured, you mm-hmm. know, after they were built. That was another thing. But yeah. I think it just didn't go, you know, it didn't go as far as he and his, you know, fellow modernists hoped. Right. It just didn't for any number of reasons. Yeah. Um, but I have to say that now, you know, from our vantage point in the, you know, 2019, um, there's so much more information that we have at our disposal about how widespread modern residential architecture became. Agreed. Um, you know, not just the books and all the scholarship, but now there are all these great websites. I mean, I love looking at the websites on, you know, mid-century modernism and learning about, you know, buildings designed in Australia and, you know, just, you know, Latin America and all throughout the United States, Europe, Canada. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Yeah, and and you're right, a lot more easily accessible that allows – this group of modernists to unite at a different level than what was probably possible back then. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when people realize, you know, the value, you know, sort of like the historical value of, um, you know, of this movement, um, you know, I mean, I think it also prompts them to take better care of their homes and to Mm -hmm. really, you know, sort of keep them in the, you know, original style as much as is possible because that, you know, that can, you know, that can add to the value of the house, you know, in a certain way. 
For and sure. um, I think just like the continual raising of awareness about, um, you know, about this this mode of architecture um, is really important. And it's it, it, it's you know been a long thing. It's been a long path um, over the past you know thirty some years. Yeah. Um, but I mean, from where I sit, I really do see um, a complete change in how well regarded modern residential architecture is in this country now, as opposed to the you know mid '80s when I started on you know my project. <laughs> That's funny. So yeah. my second, my second to last question for you, um, for the listening audience, why does this material matter today? Well, I have to assume that anybody listening to this podcast is going to be interested in modern architecture or at least, you know, want to learn something about it. So I think just building off of what I was saying previously, it's become a a fairly prevalent um, architectural style uh, in our country and around the world. And I think that it needs to be recognized for its historical significance and importance, as well as for the kind of, you know, sort of beautiful, graceful environments that it creates um, for those who live in such houses. I mean, there's, you know, there's really, um, there's really something wonderful about, um, you know, the simplicity and the beauty of the open plan and the openness to light and air and the outdoors. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, the furnishings also that, you know, were designed in harmony with that architecture are, you know, really wonderful and beautiful. And I feel that um, all of this needs to be recognized. There, you know, are certain people who are hardcore traditionalists and they love, you know, big comfy armchairs and, um, you know, all kinds of decorative flourishes and things like that in their homes. Mm-hmm. But there are those of us who, um, you know, who, who like a different kind of aesthetic and I think right. more and more it's it's uh it's it's become appreciated. Um and um I you know, I do feel I mean, as somebody who's written about this type of architecture a great deal, um, I feel that the more people know about it and understand its history, then you know, the I mean the the more interesting it is and the more valuable it is from a cultural, you know, perspective mm-hmm. as well as from an economic perspective. Right. Okay, last question, and this one's a bit of a curveball that I'm going to throw you, so I hope you can hang with me. (laughs) I'll do my best. I'm assuming you have lived in many houses over your lifetime. Mm -hmm. Do you currently live in a modernist home? Well, I live in New York City in uh, an apartment building that was built in the uh, 1930s, (laughs) <laughs> so it's definitely not a modern home, I have to say. Have um, you lived in one? Well, the closest thing, the the, the closest time I, I came to living in a modern home was when I lived in Los Angeles and was married to an architect who, like me, was a passionate um, uh, you know follower of modernism. Yeah. And uh, he, uh, he and I were able to buy a little piece of land and um, build a home there that he designed. And while it wasn't, uh, you know, a replica of any of the case study houses by any means, it was very much influenced by that aesthetic and that idiom. And um, my then-husband was very much um, attracted to the architecture of Schindler, R.M. Schindler, who was a predecessor of the case study architects and um, whose 
you know, many um, residential works around L.A. are also extraordinary examples of a, of a creative imagination. Yeah. So that was the closest I came to ever living in such a home. And th- the main thing that I remember about that home is how open to nature it was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we just pulled open that sliding glass door, you know, and just, you know, it was just this, like, complete kind of indoor-outdoor um, yeah. environment, which was very much, you know, the spirit of the case study program. Totally. Um, and, and of modern architecture, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to be sort of um, open to and in harmony with nature. Yeah. So, yes, I That's remember cool. that experience fondly. And if I, ha- yeah. if I had the, you know, if I had the occasion to buy a modern home, if I were in that situation, I would buy one in a heartbeat. And I would keep <laughs> it immaculately restored, just as it should have been originally. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. cool. Well, we've taken quite a your time, quite a bit of your time, of which has been absolutely wonderful and very interesting. And I know that um, the folks listening will probably agree. So um, thank you so much for all the work that you did do and um, even being available to still do some work and talk about the work that you have done. Uh, very appreciative of that. And um, just thank you for your your time on the podcast today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to speak. It's always a pleasure to revisit the topic of the case study houses. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Till next time on Next Up. Mm